0: Well, this evening we are commencing a study in a book that is often overlooked. It's a book of the Bible where there's not much preaching and teaching coming from, which is a real shame. And the reason it's a real shame is because the Apostle Paul tells us in the book of Romans, chapter 15, verse 4, that all of the Old Testament, including Ezra, was written for our learning and for our growth. Uh, That means that this book, which is full of political pronouncements, names, numbers and building plans, is just as relevant today for us as something like John 3.16 is. It is God's word and it is true, so we would do well to study it. But before we begin to study our passage this evening, I think it would be helpful if we were to examine just a little bit of the background of the book of Ezra. Uh, for starters, who is the author of Ezra? That's a, that's a big question, and here's the deep theological answer. We really don't know. We're not 100% certain who wrote the book of Ezra. We suspect it was Ezra. Scholars tend to agree that whoever wrote the books of First and Second Chronicles and Nehemiah also wrote the book of Ezra. Historically, Jewish tradition and church tradition has said that Ezra is the author, so I'm happy to hold with that traditional view. Now, the book itself was written between 430 and 400 BC, and it covers historical events that took place between 538 BC and 433 BC. So in total, the book of Ezra covers just over a century. Of history. Now, something that's worth noting as we study this book is that even though it's named Ezra, we actually don't meet Ezra until chapter 7, verse 1. There is about 60 years of history in the book of Ezra before we meet Ezra. And now, as we start to look at the text as we begin to enter into this book, something that should strike us immediately as we begin to read is that things are out of place. Normally when you read the Old Testament, you read the story of the children of Israel, you often see that much of it centres around the Promised Land, the land which God had given them. But as we come to Ezra, we discover that they are not in the Promised Land. Rather, the people of God are not where they are supposed to be. They are instead in captivity in Babylon. Uh, For 70 years, the children of Israel have been away from their homeland. They have been cut off from true worship as the temple in Jerusalem had been destroyed. They are captives in a foreign land all because a generation before the people had sinned, worshipped idols and brought judgment upon the land. Hope had almost been lost. And as a result of sin, these children of Israel were picked up out of the Promised Land and transferred to Babylon. Now, Seventy years earlier, King Zedekiah led the nation of Israel in a war against Babylon, which is a war that he lost. He fought the famed king, Nebuchadnezzar, who captured the city of Jerusalem. Zedekiah and his sons upon Seeing Jerusalem captured fled the city and they made their way up into Syria but when they were in Syria the Babylonians captured them they captured the king and his sons and what they did is they killed the sons in front of King Zedekiah and then they gouged out King Zedekiah's eye after he saw the death of his sons so the last things he saw was his sons being killed King Zedekiah was then led off into captivity to Babylon and he is never heard of again. And we might hear that and go, well, that happens in ancient history, kings come and go. But for Israel, this was a major event because the king was the one who stood in the Davidic line. And it's through the Davidic line that the Messiah was promised. Yet here is King Zedekiah being led off to captivity, being lost, and his heirs being executed. From a Hebrew perspective, this would have been devastating because the monarchy is now over. The Davidic line has been destroyed. All hope is lost because in their mind, the line of Messiah has been removed. Despair would have filled the people. It was a dark, time for the people of God. Yet in the midst of the darkness, God was at work. Uh, even though the Babylonian government of that day held the people of God captive, God was about to work in such a way that would show his complete and total sovereignty over all human institutions. And I want you to notice first in verses 1 to 4 that our God is completely sovereign over human government our God is sovereign over government Uh, even though we see in the book of Ezra there is despair upon the people things we are told begin to change in verse 1 when it says in the first year of Cyrus king of Persia So something's about to change. We're in the first year of the reign of Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, if you were to study Persian history, you would discover that Cyrus is held up as the greatest of all their leaders. And Ezra tells us that what was happening, what's about to occur for the people of God, all begins in the first year of the reign of Cyrus in Babylon. Now, as a king, Cyrus had been reigning in Persia since 559 BC but he did not capture Babylon until October 539 BC and that's when everything began to change that's when the promises of God began to be fulfilled now even though we have a strong emphasis here at the start of Ezra about the reign of Cyrus what we need to keep in mind is that Cyrus is but a player on the stage set by God Cyrus, even though he is powerful in that empire at that time and his word was law, ultimately, as we will see, he has to bow to the true king. He has to submit to the king of all kings. God is sovereign even over the most powerful government that existed at that time. What we will see as we look at Ezra chapter 1 is that God is about to use King Cyrus to achieve his ends and to ultimately fulfil prophecy. Our text tells us in verse 1 that the Lord is going to work to fulfil a prophecy that was made by Jeremiah the prophet. Uh, Many, many years earlier, Jeremiah prophesied that the people of God would sin, and as a result of their sin, they would be taken off into captivity for 70 years. They would go to Babylon for 70 years. But then, at the end of the 70 years, God would deliver his people. In Jeremiah 25, 12 to 13, we read, When the 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation. This is the Lord's declaration. The land of the Chaldeans for their iniquity. And I will make it a ruin forever. I will bring on that land all my words I have spoken against it, all that is written in this book that Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. So 70 years were decreed for discipline upon the people of God. Their sin brought about 70 years of discipline. Why 70 years? Well, Psalm 90 verse 10 says 70 years is equal to a lifetime. So there's been a lifetime of discipline on the people of God. They have been taken into captivity because of their rebellion. And while they were in the captivity of Babylon, while they were in that foreign land, Jeremiah 29, 4-7 says that the people of God were actually to make the most of it. They were to live and they were to work. They were to seek the good of Babylon. They were to establish themselves in the land by building houses, planting gardens and giving their children in marriage. They were to have babies and increase in Babylon and for 70 years that's exactly what they did. They established themselves in a nation that had taken them captive. But now the 70 years are up. The sentence of discipline has been served and now God is about to show his sovereignty and faithfulness in fulfilling prophecy. Ezra 1 tells us it was at this time that the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. God begins to work. He works upon the heart and the will of King Cyrus. And he does this by changing his attitude. Now normally, if you have captives, if you are a conquering king, you don't let your captives go. You don't release them. Captives are good, cheap, slave labour. It was the standard practice in the, the ancient Near East to keep your captives close and treat them badly so that they would not rise up against you. You keep them poor, you keep them weak, and you certainly don't let them go back to their land in case they regroup and come against you. This is what kings did, but King Cyrus has had God move upon his heart. God changes the heart of Cyrus, He sovereignly directs the heart of Cyrus to the point where he 's going to release the children of Israel. See what we are seeing here in the start of Ezra is proverbs twenty one one on display. The king 's heart is in the hand of the Lord, like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever. He wishes. This is the sovereignty of God. When God decides to act, the human will, be it the will of a king or anyone else, provides no barrier to him. When God decides to act, human will does not change that. Cyrus had his will changed. And he was brought into submission to God's plan. Now, as we think about the sovereignty of God and the will of Cyrus here, the question that rightly arises in our mind is this. What about free will? What about free will? Couldn't Cyrus have rejected God's plan at this point? Now, we have a big thing in modern Christianity. It's all about the freedom of the will. It's about the freedom of self. And everywhere you go, the freedom of the human will is championed. But what about Cyrus? Could have he used his free will and said, no, God, I'm not going to do that? I mean, mean, just think about it for a moment. If God could have had his plan thwarted by Cyrus using his free will, then who ultimately is the sovereign? If Cyrus could use his human will to reject God's will, to reject God's plan, to refuse to let the people go, then the decrees of God would have been stopped. Prophecy would have failed. Prophecy would have been prevented. Thus, Jeremiah would have been a false prophet. Moreover, if Cyrus could have stopped the will of God, if he could have used his free will to stop the will of God, then the line of Messiah would have disappeared. And we would have seen God himself submitting to Cyrus. And if that was possible, we have to ask, who is the sovereign? It would have been Cyrus. If Cyrus's free will could stop the plant of God, then he would have been greater than God. But that's not what we see in Scripture. What we see in Scripture is that God is free and his sovereign will trumps our will. He can change our will at any time. If God did not change our will, then none of us would have actually ever been saved. I mean, just think about that for a moment. Romans 3 describes what our will is like naturally. Our will naturally hates God. Our will naturally runs far from God. We don't seek righteousness, we don't pursue God, we don't want goodness, we want nothing to do with God. That's our will. But God, through the work of the Spirit, changes our will. And he turns our hearts so that we might seek him. If we leave everything up to the freedom of human will, then none of us would ever be saved. God's will outworks itself by changing our will. And that's what we see with Cyrus. God changes his will. He turns his heart. Cyrus, who would have been a pagan and an enemy of God, is still used by God to achieve his plans and purposes. But how does God change the will of Cyrus? Indeed, how does God change the will of humanity in general? Well, what we see in the Bible is that God actually uses, very often he uses, the Word of God to change humans' will. It is through the Word of God that God chooses to work to change the hearts and minds of people. And this is why it is important that we use the Bible when it comes to evangelism, when it comes to teaching, or when it comes to speaking on moral issues. God has chosen to use his word to change the wills of the people. But did he do that with Cyrus? It's one thing for me to stand here and say, God uses his word to change the will of people, but what about Cyrus? Did God use his word to change the will of Cyrus? Well, the scripture doesn't actually tell us. But... The Jewish historian Josephus gives us a little bit of insight. Josephus argues that Cyrus was actually exposed to the scripture. And when he was exposed to the scripture, that is what God used to change his heart. In his work, The Antiquities of the Jews, Josephus states that upon entering the city of Babylon, Cyrus was met by the prophet Daniel. And Daniel, who would later become Prime Minister under Cyrus, gave him a scroll containing the prophecies of Isaiah. Prophecies that were written 150 years earlier. Now the particular scroll that Cyrus was exposed to contained Isaiah 44:27 27 to Isaiah 45:13, which is a prophecy that mentions Cyrus by name. 150 years earlier. A prophecy was given that mentioned Cyrus by name. Isaiah says this is who Cyrus is, this is what he's going to do, this is how God will use him. And Josephus tells us that upon reading the scroll, Cyrus decided to act. By Daniel taking God's word to the king, the heart of Cyrus was changed. God changed his will through the word of God. And as we think about this, this should really give us food for thought when we seek to engage in any kind of political or cultural engagement. If we're going to engage in any of those sort of areas, we need to stand upon the Word of God. We can only speak with authority into the cultural issue or political issues or any issues relating to life as long as we stand upon the Bible as our foundation. If we jettison that, then we can't speak because God has chosen to use his word to change the will of humanity. So God changes the will of Cyrus. He changes his heart. And Cyrus, as a result of this will being changed, issues a proclamation throughout his empire. He says that the people of God, those who have been in captivity for 70 years, are free to go. They can go back to their homeland. They can go back to Jerusalem, not just to live, but they can go back to rebuild the temple. They should be free to go back and rebuild, to re-establish worship. But get this, Cyrus even goes a step further. He doesn't say in his declaration, go be free, build your temple, do whatever. Cyrus actually even says... You should be supported financially to do this task. Go be free and here's some money. Look at verses 2 to 4. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah, who is among you of all his people. May his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. And whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides the free will offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem." Now, as you read that proclamation, you can see how much the will of Cyrus has been changed. You can see that his heart has been completely turned. The language is fascinating. It's almost like you're reading the declaration of someone who has been saved, but we know Cyrus wasn't. We know Cyrus was a pagan because Cyrus continued after this point to worship the false god Marduk. And we know that he worshipped Marutak and he increased the offering to the pagan gods and the prayers to the pagan gods because we have what's called the Cyrus Cylinder, which archaeologists have found. In fact, if you go to the British Museum, you can look at it. It's housed in the museum. And that cylinder tells us that Cyrus was a full-on pagan. Yet despite the fact that Cyrus is a pagan, God has chosen to use his enemies to achieve his purposes. Uh, Matthew Henry had a good observation on this passage. He said, It is said of Cyrus that he knew not God, nor how to serve him. But God knew him, and how to serve himself by him. Cyrus didn't know God, but God knew who Cyrus was. Cyrus didn't know how to serve God, but God said, I will serve myself through you. You see, what God does is he uses the government of that day to advance his cause. He takes the mightiest government and he says, you are but puppets in my hand. I will turn you whatever way I will. See, this tells us that governments are not all powerful. The state is not God. Rather, the state is to be the servant of God. God is completely sovereign over human government. Daniel 2.21 tells us it is God who raises up kings. In Acts 17.26 we are told that God sets the boundaries of nations. In Romans 13.1 we are told that God appoints governments. God is the sovereign over the governments. And even though Cyrus operated as a complete absolute monarch, where his word was law, even he had to submit to God's command. He had more power than our parliament has. Yet God says, I will take you and I will use you to achieve my purposes. And as I look at this, I find that I have hope when we look at our government, when we look at our political situation, because our government is not the final authority. God can change them in a moment also. So God causes Cyrus to make a decree that the people should return to Jerusalem in order to rebuild the temple, to re-establish true worship. But such an undertaking is going to cost money. So what Cyrus does in his decree is that he says that the people of the kingdom are to assist those who are going back to Jerusalem. Look at verse 4. And whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides the free will offerings for those for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Now we have two types of assistance being offered here, two types of giving. One is a mandated tax, and the other is a free will offering. There are two different types of giving here in verse 4. A mandated tax and a free will offering, both of which are used to assist the people on their mission. You see, what we have here through Cyrus's decree is state-endorsed and state-funded giving to religion. A tax has been levied on the people to support a particular belief. Now, I know as Baptists, These sort of verses and statements can make us nervous because historically, Baptists have championed the cause of separation of church and state. That has been a Baptist distinctive from the beginning. And what separation of church and state means is that the church does not run the state. I do not make laws. You do not make laws in this land. The church does not run the state. So the church is separate from the state. Likewise, the state stays out of the church. The state does not come into the church and say, this is how you worship. There's a separation of powers. Now, this doesn't mean that Christians should not be in politics, Nor does it mean that the church should not seek to promote godly laws. But what it does mean is that the state must not govern the church. It must not seek to take care of the spiritual needs of the people. But it does not mean that the state should not seek to assist the church to achieve her ends. Now the government, according to Romans 13.4, is given as God's minister. Or literally in the Greek, as God's deacons. They are given to do good for the people. As such, the government, as God's ministers, should seek to protect the freedom of the church so that the church can spread its message. The state should protect the church from persecution. And as we see here, there's even times when the state should support the church financially, but, and there's a big but here, it must be done with no strings attached, which is what we see with Cyrus. He says a tax is levied and there's free will. Give gold, give things. But Cyrus doesn't put any strings on it. He doesn't say, but what you have to do is honour me as the supreme governor of the church. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say, look, you can go back to Jerusalem and rebuild your temple, but when you have your big get-togethers, your big feasts, I get a seat at the table and I get a theological say. He doesn't do that. He doesn't establish a state church. Uh, That would be wrong. That would be a mixing of different dominions, different roles that God has established. No, Cyrus doesn't seek to control the people of God. Instead, the state simply says, we will help true religion with finances. But keep in mind, as you look at this text, don't just think that Cyrus is deciding to do this. Look again at verse 1. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom. This is God's doing. God stirred up Cyrus to establish a system of state-supported giving to support the true church. Now this is showing that God is completely and totally sovereign over the government. He has a pagan king release his captives and he has a pagan king pass laws to financially support true worship. This king is a puppet in the hands of a sovereign God. And as we look around us and different political crises that may come our way, remember even the most powerful politician in our land can have his will changed instantly and that God just moves politicians around as he sees fit because the politician, even though they might like to think they have absolute authority, have none. They only have that which is given to them by God and the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So God is sovereign over human government. Second, I want you to notice from the text, God's sovereignty over humanity, verses 5 to 11. Now, I just want to briefly examine how the people responded to the proclamation of Cyrus. You see, the people have been in Babylon for 70 years. Uh, They have been told by God that they should build homes, have families, plant crops and seek the good of the city. And many people as a result, we know from history, actually had businesses and trades within Babylon. Uh, Some such as Daniel even held high office in government and several other captives were in positions of power. Uh, basically, even though they were captives, things had become quite comfortable for them. It was comfortable after 70 years. You had a business, you had a home, you had crops, you had family, you all settled down in Babylon. Why would you want to leave that? Why would you want to leave the, the most glorious city in the empire to return to Jerusalem, which was laying in ruins? Why would you want to do that? Further, the trip from Babylon to Jerusalem was dangerous and long. Why leave comfort behind? Now the natural response would be to say, well that's good for someone else. They can go do the Jerusalem thing. They can go do that long journey. I'm going to stay at ease in Babylon. Yet what we see in the text is that a number of people didn't do that. Instead they gave up everything to return to their homeland. Now some of these people returning to their homeland would have never been there. It's 70 years since the people were uprooted and moved. Yet they are willing to give up comfort and luxury and life to return to Jerusalem. In verse 5 we are told that a small number of people responded to this proclamation. We know it's a small number because Ezra chapter 2, which God willing we're going to look at next week, is a chapter full of names and numbers. So it's worth coming to the Bible study just to hear me try and say all those names or if I want to be really mean, I'll volunteer Ian or Marlon to do the readings. But we have a whole list of names here that are terrible to say. But if you add up all the numbers, not many people are actually going back to Jerusalem. Now, some would go back later. There was actually three returns to Jerusalem. But in this initial return, there are not many people going. But what we do see is that this small group that is returning are the people that God has chosen to return. God has moved upon their hearts and he has stirred them up to return. The people respond to the declaration of Cyrus Only because God turned their heart and said, I want you to go back. You see, God is sovereign over human hearts and decisions that are made, which is why in verse 5 we read, Then the heads of the father's houses of Judah and Benjamin, the priests and the Levites, with all whose spirits God had moved. Who moved? God moved them. We're in Babylon. We've got comfort. We've got everything we need. And God comes along and He moves their heart. He turns their heart. God is sovereign over humanity and He stirs them up so they arise and they go and build the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem. You see, the human will never wants to engage in hardship. The human will does not want to engage in in anything that requires suffering and pain. We don't want to give up everything. But God comes along and he moves upon the heart of the people. He changes their heart. He causes them to go where they are supposed to go. He calls out a faithful remnant, those who were not satisfied with what the world offered in Babylon, and he calls on them to return to Jerusalem and to re-establish true worship. You see, it's an interesting pattern here. Jerusalem is in ruins. There is no true worship. But God takes a small band and he says, you are the ones I have chosen. I am stirring you up to return. And whenever there is a movement in church history to re-establish true worship or reformation or a return to the old paths, you will often find that God begins the work with a small band. He never begins the work with the mass crowds. So God takes a small band here and says, Go back to Jerusalem. Re-establish true worship. Re-establish true religion in the land. So God moves them. But how do the people of Babylon respond to those who are leaving? Verse 6. And all those who are around them encourage them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with precious things besides all that was willingly offered. Now the people of Babylon followed the direction of the king. Oh, you're going home? Let me get you some gold. Let me get you some silver. Let me give you some livestock. You're heading back? Let me, let me pay the tax that the king said I have to pay. Now this is a sovereign work of God because what we have here is Jew and Gentile, free and captive, all gladly giving to the cause of God. There's no indication in the text that the people gave grudgingly. Rather, they were encouraging those who left. They gladly gave up their gold. They gladly gave up their silver. They gladly gave up their livestock. They didn't just say to those leaving and heading back to Jerusalem, look, all the best, we'll pray for you, look us up on Facebook, we'll stay in contact. They don't do that. No, they say, how can we help you? How can we support you? They willingly give. Now, only a sovereign God can change the hearts of people to willingly give like that. To give sacrificially. But it doesn't just finish there. The text goes on to say that Cyrus then goes and empties out the pagan temples and he returns to the people, the articles, that Nebuchadnezzar had taken when he captured Jerusalem. Uh, Back then the standard practice was that when you defeated a nation, you went into their temple and you took their religious emblems, their religious tools, and you took them home and you put them in your temple as a sign that your God beat up their God. That's what they did. But here, the God of the Bible, the only true God, moves Cyrus to empty the pagan temples. God plunders the pagans by taking back the gold from their temple that was stolen. He isn't defeated by their weak, non-existent God. No, God plunders what was his and then he takes more. The pagans are paying for true religion to be re-established. And this is a big indicator that will has been changed because pagans don't support true worship. Yet, we want to encourage you. We want to give. Take some more. Look, take some gold. You might need that on your journey. All of this goes against the normal practice of the day. Why did it occur? To fulfil a prophecy that had been made many years earlier. How did it occur? Because God showed his sovereignty. The only way this prophecy could be fulfilled in such descriptive ways is because God is completely and totally sovereign. His plans will not fail. He is the sovereign king. He is the faithful king who keeps his promises. He does not allow his word to fall to the ground failing. He is sovereign over all. And we should take comfort in this because as we read Ezra, we keep in mind that these things were written for our learning. So when we look at this, we go, okay, what can I learn? Well, we serve the same God. The God of Israel who delivered the people is the God of true Israel, the church. He's our God. He's the one that we serve. He's the one that we worship. The God of Ezra chapter 1 who turns human government to do his will and bidding, is our God. And he is still sovereign. We should be struck, as we begin our study in Ezra, by the fact that human will, human government, the comfort of the people, and the riches of the nations are actually no barrier to the work of God. When God sets about to achieve His plans, then nothing will stop them. God works all things out after the perfect counsel of His will, and this should give us hope. It should give us hope, because we live in a day and age where darkness is setting in. The church can almost feel like we're here in a state of captivity. That we're in a state of darkness, despair is coming upon the Western Church. Is it because the Church has sinned and the Lord is disciplining us? Possibly. Is it a judge's scenario where God is allowing enemies to stay in the land so the Church might learn to war again? Maybe. But what we see is this. Darkness is getting deeper. Governments in our day and age are not friendly towards the church. Just think about the G7 for a moment. We have our Prime Minister there who is openly supporting abortion and LGBT issues. Forcing abortion even upon parts of the United Kingdom that does not want abortion. We have President Biden, who has spent more money in his first 100 days of office supporting the murder of babies than any other president in history. A president who is seeking to make rules and laws that will limit freedom of religion. We have Prime Minister Trudeau from Canada, whose government has arrested and jailed pastors in Canada and who have erected fences around church buildings and seized their properties and said, you will not worship here. It's dark. It's not pleasant. Despair may be there. But as we visit Ezra, we see that even in the darkness, God is still sovereign. And that God is bringing his plans to pass. We should have hope as we study Ezra because our government is not God. The state is not God. Our culture is not God. Society is not God. God is God. Jesus is Lord over everything. And he alone is completely and totally sovereign. And we don't know what tomorrow will bring, but he does. We could be standing on the verge of one of the greatest awakenings this land has ever seen. We don't know. He does. Our job is not to curse the darkness and say, oh, woe is me. No, our job is to hold on to the sovereignty of God, to cling to Him, knowing that He changes stubborn wills, that He transforms people through the message of the Scripture, that He can change everything in His perfect timing and according to His good pleasure. Therefore, what we need to do is to take the word that changes the will of humanity and proclaim it not knowing what God will do with it, but knowing that God has chosen to work sovereignly through his word proclaimed. So let us take comfort as we study the book of Ezra. Things are dark, but true worship will not be extinguished. God is at work, even when evil men sit in power, God is sovereign. Let's pray. Oh, our God and our Father, we do thank you for the book of Ezra. We thank you that we can study what you have done in times past, that all this was given for our learning so that we might grow and trust in you more. Lord, please help us to trust in your sovereignty. Help us not to look at the darkness and the situations that is around us, but rather may we hold fast to you, our King, knowing that Jesus is Lord, that He is the Sovereign, and that He works all things out after the perfect counsel of His will. O Lord, please strengthen Your people, and may we not despair. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.